We're going to be discussing the matter of being justified through faith alone. And that is the seventh part in our series entitled Defending Your Faith. Talking about tonight the matter of justification. And that is such a fitting song to introduce this doctrine of justification for you tonight, were it not for grace wandering down some pointless road to nowhere, forever running but losing the race, were it not for grace. That's such a true statement that is contained within that song. And I want you to know tonight that this particular message in this series on defending your faith is probably the most important message in this series because of its contemporary relevance. So far, we've discussed the doctrine of the Bible, including the doctrines of revelation and inspiration. We've spoken about the doctrine of God, including God as Trinity, three persons in the one God. We've covered in this series thus far the doctrine of Christ, including the claim of His deity, And all of this brings us now to the doctrine of salvation, specifically to the doctrine of justification, or how a man is declared right with God. Now, this doctrine is relevant, as I said, to us today because of all of the present discussions which are occurring within evangelicalism. As you may or may not know, these discussions are between pockets of evangelicals and Roman Catholics. These talks have resulted in at least two papers of dialogue which have been published, one of them entitled Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and a follow-up paper entitled The Gift of Salvation, which have caused great amounts of reaction on both sides, both evangelicals and Roman Catholics. And my purpose tonight is not to carry on the debate between these two groups, but rather to give you the orthodox doctrine of justification so that you and I are not confused in any way about what God's Word teaches on the matter. What does God's Word teach on this Topic. Well, tonight I'm going to give you four outline points regarding the doctrine of justification. And the first one is this, the definition. The definition. We need to know precisely how to define the concept of justification itself right out of the chute. We need to define the doctrine of justification and then explicate the Scripture as it relates to this crucial doctrine. And so, you would have it in your minds as we begin tonight, I want you to give, I want to give you the, the precise definition of this doctrine. And I want you to write this down because it is very, very important. Justification is this. It is God's legal declaration, God's legal declaration of the sinner as just in his sight. 
Justification is God's legal declaration of the sinner as just in God's sight, based solely upon the merits of Jesus Christ, both in his life of perfect righteousness as well as his death on the cross. Now, I'm going to repeat that again because it is so very important. And it gives us the framework for which we can discuss this doctrine tonight. Justification is God's legal declaration of the sinner as just in his sight, just or righteous in his sight, based solely upon the merits of Jesus Christ, both in his life of perfect righteousness as well as his death on the cross. In other words, every sinner who has been justified has been justified, declared righteous in God's sight, solely upon the basis of the representative righteousness of Christ as he lived that righteousness on earth, as well as his redemptive death on the cross. So, the two aspects of justification from the side of Christ is his representative righteousness as he lived out that righteousness on earth and his redemptive death, the giving of his blood as seen on the cross. Now, that is a precise definition of this doctrine and it will carry us through the rest of our evening together. Now, the verb to justify, dikaiau, really is a word as it sweeps across the New Testament, most often referring to declaring an unrighteous person as righteous based on their being credited or reckoned with the righteousness of Christ. It was a legal term. When this particular word, justification or to justify was picked up by the Apostle Paul, it was giving us a legal term or an accounting term that tells us that we have an account with God. And that account with God has been credited or reckoned or imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who are much more trained in accounting than I am, know that you, when you have an accounting, say, for a business... You have a ledger, a book, that keeps all of the various transactions. And you know that your books are not balanced until this ledger is complete. And that ledger, spiritually speaking, has our account with nothing but sin, nothing but unrighteousness. And what God does is in our account, or for us, for our account... He gives us, He credits us, He reckons us with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at us and we are standing before Him, as we will all do one day, He allows us into His heaven based solely upon the merits of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Both in His life, living perfectly up to the standard of the law of God, and by His death as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. 
Now, you might ask the question as we have defined this matter of justification, does the Old Testament teach such a thing? And it does. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. For the Old Testament teaches the doctrine of justification as well. And that is our second point in the outline. The definition and then the Old Testament teaching. This precise definition of justification is also seen, secondly, in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 32, verse 2, the Bible declares this, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, and when it uses this terminology of the imputing of iniquity, or the fact here in the very positive affirmation that the Lord does not impute iniquity, it is teaching us the doctrine of justification. You know that this particular theory or definition of imputation, again, comes from an accounting background. To impute is to put something to another. And it's very, very different than what Roman Catholics teach about the doctrine of justification. For if you're involved at all with any of these debates, you know that they don't teach the doctrine of imputation. They don't say that our account has been credited through no works of our own of any kind. They believe in the doctrine of infusion. In other words, in this matter of justification, Roman Catholics believe that it is not what God declares about you, it is what God does in you. He infuses into your life His grace so that one day you are able to stand on the merits of your righteousness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God infuses you. He puts into you His grace. Now, to be sure, Roman Catholics do not believe that you can save yourself. They do not believe that. But they do believe that through the mix or the integration of the grace of God, giving this grace into me so that then ultimately by my good works and the grace of God, I am able to stand righteously before God. At least that's the hope. That's the desire. Well, this particular verse contradicts that. Because this verse says, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. In other words, you and I are sinners both by nature and by choice. And because we are sinners by virtue of Adam's fall as the representative head of the race, we have been plunged into sin. And because of that, we have a nature of sinfulness. And we choose to sin because we are sinners. And because of that, we have reckoned to our account right now nothing but sin, nothing but unrighteousness. That's what's in our credit column. That's why there's no amount of good deeds, no amount of good works, no amount of merit, no amount of trying to live up to the standard of the law of God that could ever make me righteous before Him on my own because I have nothing but sin in my credit column. And of course, as you know, there is absolutely no way that I could ever purge 
the credit column of that sin. You say, wait a minute. Isn't it true that we have sin in our debit column because that's a negative? Well, for the Christian, we have nothing but sin, nothing but sin to offer God, and so we have nothing in our debit column to offer God and nothing in our credit column to offer God. All of the bad things that we do, we recognize are debits. But even all of the good things we might try to do, all of the good deeds that we might try to do for other people, the giving of our money, the giving of our time, the doing of good works out in the community, uh, the prayers that we would pray, the church services that we would attend, the amount of Bible reading that we would undertake, all of those things, apart from the merits of Jesus Christ and His righteousness, account to us as nothing. We have nothing. We are nothing. You say, well, that's a pretty bleak picture. Well, that's the picture the Bible gives. And you know that in this particular psalm, Psalm 32, David is confessing his sin, specifically his sin against Bathsheba and his sin against God by taking her to be his wife. And when he says about his sin, through my groaning all day long, I kept silent about my sin and my body wasted away, Psalm 32, 3. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But here's what he did. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In other words, the only thing that we can offer to God is our sin. We offer to Him our sin in this way. God, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer you. Any of the most righteous deeds that I believe that I could ever give to you, all of the pains of suffering and service and selflessness that I believe that I could ever grant to your satisfaction would never ever be enough because even in the best deeds that I do, even in the best righteousness I have, according to Isaiah, it's nothing but a filthy rag. It's nothing but sin that I offer you. You say, well, is it true that some great philanthropist, someone who is uh, giving all kinds of money, I just read in the paper the other day, as you probably did as well, that Bill Gates has just given $5 billion to a charitable cause. Well, the answer is, Apart from the merits and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, $5 billion given to a charity means absolutely nothing to God. In fact, it's a foul stench in His nostrils. Because no one could ever give money to a charitable cause. No one could ever give $50 billion, $500 billion for world hunger if it's done with the purpose of an attempt to be right with God. David knows that. And he comes to God and he says, I know that I've sinned against you. I know that I've committed these sinful deeds. I know that this is the sinfulness of my own heart. And the only thing I can do is cast myself upon your mercy. And in an Old Testament context, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited, reckoned to David's account. Hence the statement, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. You say, well, that sounds like it's a legal fiction. It's something that God declares about me, but you've said 
unlike the Roman Catholics, the biblical doctrine of justification is it is what God declares about me. But what about what God is doing in me? It seems to me that I appreciate the fact that God is declaring something about me, but does it mean I'll ever be changed? And the answer is yes. But that's called sanctification, not justification. The moment I am justified, the moment that God declares me righteous in Christ, He begins a work that I then begin by my righteous actions to draw closer to Jesus Christ and become sanctified. But those are two different things. They are inseparable. There is no question about that. But they are distinct and they must remain distinct. And that's why Roman Catholicism, or Catholicism is not true because they commingle the two doctrines together in such a way that justification and sanctification are virtually synonymous. And because of that, they have incredibly disabled the doctrine of justification, in fact, the gospel itself. Now, the reverse of these things are this. I've heard numbers of people say, well, listen, it's a wonderful thing that God has declared me righteous in Christ. And I believe that based on Jesus Christ's death on the cross, my sins are taken care of. But what is this about the matter of Christ's righteous life on the earth? How important is that to the matter of justification? And that is increasingly important as it unfolds itself in your minds. You say, how so? Well, God says that there is no man who could ever be justified by the works of the law, and that is true about us as human beings. But there was one man the man Christ Jesus, who did, in fact, live a perfect life of righteousness. And that was Christ. And because He was the only one to live that perfect life of righteousness, because He never sinned, and because He forever and always stood righteous before God as completely fulfilling all of the demands of the law, God has said, it is this man who by his righteous life is not just an example for us, but one who has fulfilled all of the standard of God. He cannot be cursed. And that is absolutely crucial for us, because the only one who could die for us is one who has not been cursed by the law. You see, Paul says in Galatians that the rest of us have been cursed by the law because we violated the law. Even if we violated the law in one point, the Bible says we're guilty of all. But Jesus himself never violated the law of God. You remember when at his baptism, John the Baptist said, I have need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me to be baptized? What did Jesus say? Permitted at this time, for in so doing it fulfills what? All righteousness. You see, it wasn't that Jesus himself needed to be baptized because he didn't have any sins for which that baptism would be the manifest reality. Rather, he was fulfilling all of the righteousness of God because he was the perfect keeper of the law of God. And so it's not just the death of Christ that accrues to our account, but it's also the life of Christ, his perfect righteousness. That is the doctrine of justification. And that is all bound up in what David is saying there in Psalm 32 too. So the Old Testament does, in fact, teach the doctrine of justification. I wish we had time to discover all of the other passages of the Old Testament, but at least that's representative of the doctrine itself. Now, thirdly, 
The Old Testament teaches the doctrine of justification and also the Pauline letters in the New Testament teach this as well. The Pauline doctrine of justification comes to its full bloom in his letters. And for you to see that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, because this is so very apparent from this particular passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 3. Thus far, we've defined the doctrine. We've seen it manifested in Psalm 32.2 and the Old Testament affirmation and declaration of it. And now we're going to see the New Testament affirmation and declaration of it from Paul's words in Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. You know what he's referring to there are the Judaizers who believe that in order for a person to be right with God, to be declared righteous, he must believe in Christ for sure, but he must also be circumcised physically. That's why he refers to them as the false circumcision, because he knows that circumcision itself is not a requirement for salvation. You can't do anything to your body in order to be made right with God, in order to be declared righteous. And so he says, beware of that kind of teaching. Conversely, he says in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. How so? Well, this is what we believe is the definition of a Christian, Paul says. We worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, that is, glory in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we put no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing we could ever do to our bodies or in our bodies to be declared righteous before God. We put no confidence in our flesh. And then he says, by way of his personal testimony, although, although, even if there was the slightest possibility that anyone could ever have been declared righteous by God, it would have been someone like me, and even I couldn't have achieved that. Because he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. How so, Paul? If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Because I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, the most fastidious keeper of the law of all of the Jews. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Whenever someone came along and said they were a part of this a new following of God, I persecuted them because I knew that that wasn't a following from God because I knew I was following God and they were different from me. And as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. In other words, every opportunity that everyone could have ever had to examine Paul, who was known as Saul at that time, they would have said, this is a righteous man. This is a holy man. This is a man without blame. This is a man who, if there was ever a man, this is a man who is righteous before God. Because as to the law, he's found blameless. You say, wait a minute, I thought you said that there was no human being who could ever perfectly fulfill the righteous demands of the law. Well, externally, outwardly, Paul believed that he had done that. But he, of course, also knew that inwardly, internally, 
he had not fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Because he says in Romans 7, if I had never heard of the law that says do not covet, I would have not known about myself that I was a covetous person. So he knew himself to be a sinner. But he says on the external level, if there was ever anyone who was righteous before God, who God would ever look to and say, now there is a righteous man, I'm going to accept him, it would be me. But notice what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, whatever I thought was in my credit column, whatever I thought was going to be stacking up, giving $5 billion to my favorite charity, uh, fulfilling the law and its demands, at least on the external level, as much as I could possibly fastidiously do, whatever those things were in my credit column, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, whatever I thought was gained to me, I now recognize was a complete and utter failure. Now that's a man who's humble. Because he realized that no matter the zenith of his spiritual pursuits... God would look at him and he would look at all of those righteous deeds and he would say, that's filthiness. Those are filthy rags. Because no one can be as righteous as God is righteous. And everyone who would come to God and would say, is there any opportunity to stand before you in my own righteousness with all of my deeds, all of my pursuits? God would say to him, away from me. Because God is so holy, so clean, so pure, so pristine, that no man under the curse of Adam's sin could ever stand before God and say, I am righteous. He says, more than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost, dung, refuse. That's the word. I count all things to be Dung, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, scubalon, so that I may gain Christ. You say, well, it seems to me that he's talking about this knowledge of Jesus Christ, this suffering the loss of all things, accounting them rubbish so that I may gain Christ, as though it's a human work, as though it's a a pursuit nonetheless. In other words, I, I tried to find Christ, or I tried to find God through the pursuit of my Judaism, and that didn't happen, and I realized that maybe this sect called Christianity was in fact the way, and so I began to pursue that, and I began to pursue this value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and trying to do my best to come to a place of pursuing Christ. Maybe there my righteousness will be credited to me as acceptable to God. No? Look at what he says in verse 9 that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. See it? No matter what we pursue, even if it is a pursuit of Christianity itself, if it is a pursuit based upon my own righteousness, my own good deeds, my own good works, my own pursuit of God, if it is that which I'm trying to do, then it's rubbish. 
He says, what I need to do is be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, that's so clear. I will only and ever and always be found righteous in Christ based not on my own righteousness, nothing derived from the law, but based simply and only on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here, my friends, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's right here. This is what the Bible teaches. Galatians 4.4 says that we are born under the law. That is, we all stand guilty before God because we're violators of His law by nature and choice. Christ comes, and according to Galatians 3.13, He is a curse for us. His death satisfies God's wrath with the result that His act of righteousness is our justification. It brings life to us. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is such a wonderful and crucial verse because it says that we, we, the ones who are the justified, when we look back at who we are, when we look back at what has happened in the transaction that occurred between ourselves and God, it is this. He made Him. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the doctrine of justification. That God has declared everyone as righteous in Christ simply and only based on God making Christ a payment for our sin. That's why we sing all of the songs that we sing. When we talk about, were it not for grace. If I were pursuing this, this grace, if I were trying to earn this grace, and I was running as fast and as hard as I possibly can, it would be a pointless run. Because every time I would run and every time I would pursue, it's a road that forever leads to nowhere. And what I need is grace. In fact, I should never ask God for that which I deserve. Because what I deserve is hell. What I ask God for is what I don't deserve. And that is heaven. That, my friends is Christ's righteousness credited, reckoned, imputed to me. It's what God does about Lance Quinn and about you. It's what God does on my behalf, and I'm so thankful that He's done it on my behalf. He loved me with a cross. He came to me and He said, In and of yourself you merit nothing. In and of yourself you are worthy of nothing. In and of yourself, you are nothing. That's why Paul could say about himself, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the most vile of all. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. That's why he would say, even when he would talk about his own pursuit as a Christian, that I'm laboring, I'm striving, I'm agonizing, yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul always knew. That even though his labor as a Christian, even though already having been declared righteous in Christ, even that which he is pursuing in his sanctification is a pursuit based upon the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
You know, we've said before that when people say, well, it isn't me, it's Christ, we understand what they mean. We understand that what they're saying is, I know that I'm commanded to pursue the Christian life with vigor and with vigilance, but I know this, it is Christ who works His work in me. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, that I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And there was always that constant reminder to Paul of what he'd done outside of Christ and now what he was inside of Christ. And he can never say, it's something that I am. It's only what Christ is in me. You say, all right, you've defined the doctrine of justification. You've taken us to an Old Testament passage that proves it. You've taken us to a New Testament passage here in Philippians 3 where Paul talks explicitly about this doctrine. What about Jesus? Well, I want to take you to that as we close. Look in your Bibles to Luke 18. Jesus Christ Himself teaches this doctrine. Because there are some, to be sure, who say, well, it may be that Paul teaches this doctrine. It may be that the Old Testament declares it as well. But I'm not going to believe it unless Jesus Christ Himself teaches it, and He does. In Luke chapter 18, you remember the story about the Pharisee and the publican. In Luke 18, verse 9, the Bible says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And now he's going to go on to talk about those who are, in fact, trying to defy, to derive a righteousness on their own. And that's why he says, does Luke, that he told the parable specifically to some people, i.e. the Pharisees, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see why he puts it there? It's because they were thinking that what they were doing in and of themselves was their righteousness and that was going to be acceptable to God. And not only did they view themselves by trusting in themselves that they were righteous, but they also viewed others with contempt, verse 9 says. Jesus says, here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, which is a very humble thing to say. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I give five billion dollars. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner of all sinners. I'm not even worthy to look up to heaven to ask you for forgiveness. And he was beating his breast. That means that he was tearing at himself. He was hitting himself. He realized the penitence of his own heart. He realized the bankruptcy of his own soul. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, this publican, this tax collector, this sinner, he went to his house, what? Justified. Jesus uses this word. The very word that means we have as a crediting to our account the righteousness of Christ. The acceptability of God Himself. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
But he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the doctrine of justification from the lips of Jesus himself. The legal declaration that this tax collector had gone to his house right with God because he knew in the brokenness of his own heart, in the contrition of his soul, I am not worthy to even lift my eyes up to heaven. I'm not even worthy to utter this statement. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You say, did he arrive at that humility on his own? Absolutely not. God, in the process of drawing him, made this man come to a place of realizing the bankruptcy of his own spiritual condition. And in the converse, the Pharisee saying, all of these things I do, all of these things I am. God, look at me. Aren't I wonderful? And his pride will not allow him or anyone else to be justified by God. John MacArthur has written regarding this passage, God declared him righteous, imputing to him the full and perfect righteousness of Christ, forgiving him of all unrighteousness and delivering him from all condemnation. Forever thereafter he stood before God on the ground of a perfect righteousness that had been reckoned to his account. A right understanding of justification by faith is the very foundation of the gospel. You cannot go wrong on this point without corrupting every other doctrine as well. This is the linchpin. This is the plumb line. That's why Martin Luther said this article, this doctrine, this doctrine of sola fide, as he said in Latin, This is the article, this is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. J.I. Packer in his very famous introduction to James Buchanan, a wonderful Puritan writer, wrote a book on justification that was published in the 60s. Packer was asked to do the foreword and he wrote this, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. This doctrine of justification is like Atlas. You've seen that picture of Atlas, and he's holding the entire world on his shoulders. If he lets his shoulders fall, the world falls. And that's the doctrine of justification by faith. The saving gospel has on its shoulders this wonderful doctrine of justification, and if it falls, the entire gospel is destroyed. That's why in this dialogue with Roman Catholics, we cannot, we must not compromise on this doctrine. It is not what God does in me. It is what God declares about me that I'm righteous in Christ. Bruce Milne says, Our justification is not simply a matter of God's overlooking our guilt. It's not fiction. It's not that God just says, Well, you're guilty. And I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to wink at it. It's much, much different than that. Our need can be met only if righteousness, full and entire holiness of character, is credited to us. And it is credited to us because of the righteousness of Christ, how he lived. No less than John Calvin said, The Son of God, though spotlessly pure, took upon himself... The ignominy 
and shame of our sin, and in return clothed us with His purity. You love Christ? You love what He did for you? The perfect righteousness of His life? The ignominious death of His sin-bearing on the cross? And it was for you. It was for me. That's why Charles Wesley could write a song called Amazing Love. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This is how crucial this doctrine is. I have studied this doctrine for many years. And I've asked myself many questions about why there seems to be this fascination with Rome. About this coming together to try to undo what the Reformation itself allowed the church to come out of as we know at the Dark Ages. And I've come to the conclusion because of what 1 Corinthians says, there must be heresies among you so that that which is true may be made manifest. And what has occurred is that God has allowed Rome to dialogue with these evangelicals so that the doctrine of justification by faith alone could be captured again, guarded. And you know what's happened in God's wonderful providence? Because of this dialogue with Roman Catholics and because of this compromise of the gospel that we see so clearly in our day, God has allowed a organization, a ministry, to be created called the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, those who would stand firmly on the doctrine of sola fide. And what they've done is they have begun to write a series of small booklets. For instance, R.C. Sproul has written this little booklet, Justified by Faith Alone, which is an attempt to again re-articulate for the evangelical church what apparently she is unwilling to agree to, at least in some sectors. This is a wonderful little volume. I'm going to order 50 or 100 or 150 copies of these, and I want you to pick these up because these are the opportunity for us to defend our faith. Likewise, Michael Horton has written a wonderful little booklet just like that called Evangelicals, Catholics, and Unity. It's very, very well done, and it should be read by each and every one of you because each and every one of you, as I, interact with these people very frequently. And most often, they are unable to defend their faith. They don't know exactly what they believe. And here's your opportunity to know what you believe so that you can then turn around and also tell them what they believe and why it is wrong. And it's your opportunity to see God work a work in and through your witness to them so that they might come to a glorious affirmation of the doctrine of justification. Several weeks ago, as you know, we had the Soli Deo Gloria conference. And one of the books that was advertised was this book, Justification by Faith Alone. John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and Joel Beakey and John Gerstner and John Armstrong. I want to encourage you to read books like this. You can order them from the church. This is an opportunity for us to know what we believe. And the greatest, most crucial need of the day is for each and every one of us to affirm what we believe regarding this matter of the gospel. And I want to encourage you to take this taped message as it is disseminated. After tonight, I want you to listen to it again, and I want you to have in your minds framed this doctrine 
so as to protect it. This is what the church is called to do. You know that Paul said to Timothy that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. And if we live this kind of doctrine in such a way that people come to us and say, what's different about you? You and I can say, it's because we were saved by grace. Were it not for grace. Have you been running some pointless road? Coming to a place where you realize now that no matter how hard and fast you run, it's going nowhere. Were it not for grace. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We claim the crown through Christ, our own. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is for us a beautiful doctrine, a wonderful doctrine, a doctrine that needs not only to be protected and guarded, but a doctrine to be embraced as beautiful, and lovely because it tells us in no uncertain terms that salvation is not of man it is of God it is not as a result of blood it's not as a result of the will of man it's not a result of the will of the flesh it's a result of what you have done for us in Christ and we love this doctrine And we ask that you would allow us as your church to protect this doctrine. To be in truth and in reality. The pillar and support of this great gospel. May we live it to your glory until Jesus returns. In his name we pray. Amen.